Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. We're starting today's show with a story about the Trump administration's immigration policy. Two weeks ago, we devoted an entire hour to family separations. That was after news broke that border officials were taking children away from their mothers and fathers so the parents could be prosecuted for entering the country without authorization. This sparked an outcry so loud that it forced President Trump to announce an end to this practice. Since then, our newsroom has stayed on the story, reporting on what the federal government is doing and where the kids are ending up. Our immigration reporter, Ada Bagato, has more on that now. Hi, Ada. Hey, Al. So what story do you have for us today? This next story actually came to us from a tip. There's a young woman in Phoenix who observed some really unusual activity. And she sent us some video, and it was so disturbing to some of us here in the newsroom that I decided to book a flight the next morning to go out and visit her. I'm going to show you that video in a little bit, but let me introduce you to her first. Okay. Her name is Liana Dunlap. She's a 25-year-old teaching assistant for children with autism in, in Phoenix. She lives in this fourplex apartment in the Camelback East Village neighborhood. Hi, I'm Aura. I'm Liana. Really nice to meet you. The video that she sent us has to do with this office building right next door to her apartment. So... I knew that it was next door based on what she told us and, and the video that she shared. But when I got there and I looked out the window, it's like right there. It's like five feet away. Oh, it's right mm-hmm. here. So I moved in in February and the building was vacant up until probably the end of May. And I noticed a bunch of the white vans um, in the driveway, maybe like five to ten And I was like, oh, there's a new business. And I didn't think that much of it. It's a one-story gray brick office building. The windows are impossible to see through. They're tinted and they're reflective, so you can't really see what's going on inside. And there's no signage. There's no sign saying, hey, this is what's operating inside this building. It's totally unmarked. But something caught her attention in early June. One day I was home and I looked out the window and I saw two vans pull up and I was just standing here. I was doing something in the kitchen, so I was just kind of watching. What she saw next really bothered her. And Al, it's probably a lot easier if I just show you the video that she sent us. She recorded this video the following day on the 5th of June when the same thing happened again. There's no sound, so let's just talk through what we're seeing out loud. Okay, so let's start at three, two, one. All right, so I see a gentleman getting out of the van, um, and he's marching like a group of kids. Yeah, Um, do you see all the kids? Do you see the little toddler? Looks like she's probably not old enough to walk. No, and then there's maybe like a four-year-old size-wise, maybe... Maybe eight-year-old boy. And there's more. And they're all dressed in blue, like it's a, almost like a uniform, right? Yeah. Okay, so the older kids uh, have different sort of sweats. Like they have uh, gray and white and blue and white, where the little kids had all blue sweats. And you'll notice that those were all boys. Yeah. And, you know, let's, let's pause it if we can. The kids 
all sort of seem solemn. You'll see how often they're kind of looking down on the ground. They don't seem to interact much, if at all, with the adults who are dressed in regular civilian clothes around them. Yeah, and it's like uh, in this lineup, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Wow, okay. Altogether, from the videos that we've seen, we counted 32 kids. One neighbor says that it's as many as 40. Liana describes that over time she saw as many as 80 kids go into this office building. And and then what? I mean, did she ever see them come out? No. Liana and other neighbors that I spoke with didn't see any children leave this building for almost three weeks. She did see supplies going in. There were baby and booster seats, pallets of water, big boxes of snacks like chips and fruit snacks going in. And she also said she saw workers come by one day. I saw them installing the locks on the doors and the cameras. And that's kind of when I was like, okay, something fishy really is going on here. She shared with me a text. It's a text she sent to her husband. And she said, I think something really weird is going on here. I think these kids are being trafficked. Liana and her husband Juan Carlos would eventually go outside and confront a few of the workers in the parking lot. They asked them, what is this business? What's going on here? One of the guys, he was to my husband, he said, I'm sorry, I can't talk about it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, I can't tell you what's happening. And that was it. A lot of times I would just stare out my window waiting to see something and or late at night I would go out my backyard and just look at that window waiting to see if I could hear anything or see any lights. It was just like if there are kids in there and they have those windows blocked off they're not even seeing sunlight and how long have they had them in there. There's been times where I drive by and I just start crying because, you know, it's right behind my house and I don't know. And I think that's the worst part is not knowing what's actually going on in there and just hoping that they're okay. Ada, this is where your reporting came in. So what did you find out about what's going on at this office building? Al, I want to take you through all that we know. First of all, the building is leased by a company called MVM Incorporated. They're based out of Virginia, and they have a five-year lease on this property. They just signed it in March. That's one month before Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the zero-tolerance policy. That's the policy that resulted in children being taken away from their parents at the border. Tell me about this company, MVM. Like, who who are they? MVM is a huge government contractor. The company itself was founded by former Secret Service agents. That's its origin. Its vice president, he's a former CIA agent. And they've been doing work for the federal government, for the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, for the Justice Department, for more than 30 years. They've been paid $248 million by ICE, that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to transport immigrant children since 2014. How does MVM explain what they're doing with this building? We called MVM. The company wouldn't agree to be recorded, but a spokesperson did tell us that the building, and I quote, is not a shelter or a childcare facility. It's a temporary holding place. That's what they refer to it as, a temporary holding place. The company said that the building is used to hold children being flown out of the Phoenix airport. They declined to answer our questions about how many hours or days the children were being held there. ICE told us it's not an overnight facility, and MVM said it's intended to hold children for a few hours before they take a flight out. But when we asked if the children were sleeping there, they said they couldn't confirm if children had slept there overnight. They also wouldn't tell us how many other unknown, unmapped, unmarked facilities like this one operate in Phoenix or other cities. What we do know is that MVM does operate nationwide. Is there any way to know what's going on inside the building? Like, 
what conditions might have been for these kids. Yeah, we've seen floor plans for the building. There's what looks like a main office area and then a handful of uh, individual offices and then two bathrooms with what looks like toilets and sinks. There's no kitchen and there are no showers and we don't know where the kids would sleep. We also know that the lease says that the premises can't be used for sleeping, can't be used for lodging, and can't be used for cooking. It also mentions no singing or whistling on the property. So those things that kids usually do, like singing and whistling, that's not allowed. Oh, so maybe that's why it was always silent when Leanna would stand and listen in her backyard. Did you ever try to go in yourself? We did. Liana and I did go right up to the building. Oh, there's a little bell. We rang the bell and nobody answered, so we looked through the window. I'm looking inside the office. Um, uh, It looks pretty dirty. I see a Costco um, child seat on the floor, a fan, some kind of... What's that? Is that a blow-up mattress right there? That... (laughs) does look like a blow-up mattress. Good catch, because I couldn't see that. We're just looking into this front desk area. That's all we can see, just this one messy room. On the desk, there's a box, a white um, plastic container that says baby shampoo labeled on it. And then there's gloves. They look like medical gloves. Um, Over here, there's some Post-it notes. It says... Van 5, Van 1, um, Van Room, UAC. Oh, UAC. Can you? Anytime I see the acronym UAC, I know that the government is referring to an unaccompanied alien child. That's an immigrant child who's crossed the border by themselves. More recently, UAC would mean a child who'd been separated from their parents at the border and had been turned into an unaccompanied child. The big question I still have is, who are those kids? Where do they come from? Are they still there? Liana told me that on the 22nd of June, she saw a bunch of vans lined up outside. She wanted to take more video, but the workers saw her, and she says that they actually parked the vans in this kind of rectangle formation to block her view. And Liana says that she saw several car seats and booster seats for younger kids. And then she saw all the vans just get loaded up with dozens of kids. Although she wasn't able to fully see the kids, she was able to see their feet underneath the vans. And they drove away, and she hasn't seen the kids since. From her accounting and our reporting, it's possible that this group of kids was inside the office building for up to three weeks. It could have been shorter, but MVM won't tell us, and we don't know where they went or where they are now, but we are trying to find out. Thanks, Alda. Thank you, Al. Alda Bagato and our team will continue to report on families separated at the border, and we'll bring you those stories over the coming weeks and months. If you have a tip for us, or maybe you know something about these kids— or you have another family separation tip we should know about, you can email us at border at revealnews.org. That's border at revealnews.org. Next, we move to a different kind of story about families whose lives were suddenly splintered. It's been almost a year since the devastating hurricanes of 2017. And in Houston, some families are learning that the damage to their homes was not only predictable, it was preventable. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S., Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch Season 2 wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. 
Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. We're already more than a month into hurricane season, so we're going to spend the rest of the show revisiting our reporting from last year's storms. Irma, Nate, Maria, these were just a few of the hurricanes that struck in 2017. It was the costliest hurricane season on record, causing nearly $270 billion in damages in the U.S. alone. One of those storms, Hurricane Harvey, brought the worst flooding ever seen in the city of Houston. Hurricane Harvey, state of emergency. We're not measuring in inches of rain, we're measuring in feet of rain. Harvey, the most powerful hurricane to hit this state since John F. Kennedy was president, is now a massive tropical storm. When people talk about Harvey today, they use words like unprecedented, unimaginable. But in this story, which we first brought you in January, we want to take you back in time. Nearly a year before the storm hit, when we were talking to a guy who saw some of that flooding coming, flooding that was entirely preventable. You're going to have to buckle up, I'm afraid. Richard Long works for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Nina Satija, our producer based at the Texas Tribune, drove around with him back in October of 2016. Okay, we're going to take a ride up the slope. Richard drives his white Ford pickup truck 35 feet up a steep earthen dam, so steep, Nina's a little nervous. It'll do it without any issues. Okay. A few seconds later. Is this the top of the this is the top of the dam? We're on top of the dam right now. You're looking into the reservoir right now. Looking down from the dam into the Barker Reservoir, Nina doesn't see water. Instead, it looks like a giant park. We have deer, bobcat, people recreating. We have soccer fields out here, ball fields, shooting ranges. If you look at Houston on Google Maps, there are two massive patches of green way west of downtown. One is the Barker Reservoir, which Richard and Nina are looking into right now. There's another one just like it nearby called Attics. They're what's called dry reservoirs. They only fill up during really big rainstorms, and the idea is to collect the rainwater here so it doesn't flood downtown Houston. Richard's job is to make sure the 20 miles of earthen dams surrounding the reservoirs hold all that water in place. I've had some people call me and say, hey, my kid can't play soccer. Get the water off my soccer field. Do they realize their soccer field is actually a reservoir? Well, you explain it to them and some of them get it. There's more than soccer fields inside those reservoirs. To make that point, Richard drives just a few minutes away to what looks like a typical Houston suburb. No sidewalks, two-story houses with big two-car garages, and a few scattered apartment buildings. So we're on the inside of the reservoir right now. And here's apartment complexes on the inside of the reservoir. We're inside by... We are inside the reservoir. Not Not on government property. Oh. Okay. Apartments inside the reservoir. How can that be? Well, when these projects went up back in the 1940s, the Army Corps built them so that a total of 50 square miles of land would flood behind those earthen dams. But they only bought 38 square miles. At the time, it didn't matter because hardly anyone lived out there. It was mostly rice farms and ranches. But eventually, developers bought that extra land and they built houses and apartment buildings. Nina asks about the people who live there now. Do they know they live in a reservoir? Most do not. Is it a secret? No, it is not. But they just don't know. So if we ever go to maximum flood, we're going to have water in their first stories. Maximum flood is exactly what happened 10 months later. Tropical Storm Harvey, now a history-making disaster. And a few weeks after Harvey, Nina went back to see what happened to those apartments. She takes the story from here. Hi. Is it okay to drive in? No, to be honest, they shut it down. They shut it down? Why is that? Because we're flooded. I'm back in the same neighborhood, and it looks completely different. The whole apartment complex is cordoned off. Windows are covered in plastic. Workers are walking around in white coveralls. Eventually, a supervisor drives up to the front gate to talk with me. 
Hi there. How's it going? Good. Um, I'm a reporter. Was the flooding here really bad? Um, about four to six feet high. Four to six feet? Yes. Are you recording? I am recording. I have to be careful. Well, we have to be careful because we can't release information from the property without authority. That's the end of it. He asked me to stop recording. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. I want to know if residents around here realize they're living inside a reservoir. I end up on a street called Lockmere Lane. Almost all the houses here flooded, too. There are heaps of drywall, furniture, and wet carpet on top of manicured green lawns. People are home, cleaning up. Hi there. Hi. Um, my name's Nina. I'm a reporter with the Texas Tribune. Yes. And I'm, we're kind of driving around these neighborhoods to talk to people about what they've been dealing with with Gosh. the flood. So <laughs> no, don't worry. I don't this know. isn't how Anita Bunning usually receives visitors. She's holding a bag of trash. Behind her, the walls of her first floor are totally ripped out, and fans are drying what used to be her living room. I'm standing on this piece of cardboard on her front step. Do you love my lovely welcome mat? My original welcome mat is, in, is long gone. Anita tells me more than a foot of water sat in the house for weeks. It's unlivable right now. And for the moment, they're doing a lot of the repairs themselves. You pulled all of that out yourself? I pulled all that out myself. All that wood from the yeah. bottom shelf. Yeah. Wow. Now we're getting quotes, but I don't know what we can afford. All the damage is going to cost at least $100,000. The Bunnings don't have it. Like many people here, they never bought flood insurance. Their county government doesn't consider them to be in a floodplain because they're far from any rivers or creeks. Anita's husband, Tom, says that was a big selling point when they moved here. I never wanted to live anywhere near or purchase a home that would be in a floodplain. It's been weeks since Harvey, and the Bunnings still don't know their house is actually inside a reservoir. I pull out a 25-year-old document I got from the local property records office in Fort Bend County. It's called a plat, a big map that developers have to draw up when they build a new neighborhood. Local officials have to sign off on each plat before development's allowed to go through. But most homebuyers never see it. These are general notes on this document. And do you see that one? It's number so something 14. About the, something is designed to... The font is too small for Anita to read, so her daughter Meredith reads it instead. Oh, my. I feel like I'm at the eye doctor. Okay. <laughs> This subdivision is adjacent to Barker Reservoir and is subject to extended controlled inundation. Extended controlled inundation under the management of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is what the rest of the sentence says. In other words, your property could be flooded for an extended period of time. But that's not the whole story. When the plat says this subdivision is adjacent to Barker Reservoir, that just means it's next to the government-owned portion. Remember, there's a lot of land designed to flood that the Army Corps didn't buy in the 1940s. Back then, it was rice fields. Today, it's their neighborhood. The Army Corps told us that it's accurate to say that your homes are inside Barker Reservoir. Wow. Yeah, not just, not adjacent, but oh, inside. position is key. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> According to our analysis, their home is one of 14,000 inside the Barker and Attics reservoirs. More than 5,000 of them flooded during Harvey. How is it that people like the Bunnings could buy a home and never be warned that, hey, by the way, this house was built inside a reservoir and one day it might flood? We found a realtor, Sam Chaudhry, who sold more than 50 homes out here, a lot of them in a neighborhood called Grand Lakes. Do you ever give your clients the plat? Do you ever see the plat? We actually give them something better. We actually have the survey done. A survey is a newer map, and it's supposed to have more information about a particular property. Sam says plats are old, used mostly when developers are building a neighborhood, not when someone's buying a home. But when Sam shows me the survey, there's nothing on there about Barker Reservoir. Flood note, according to firm, da, 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 this property is in zone X and does not lie within the 100-year floodplain. Is this what you're required to, are you required to give the buyer the survey? Buyer actually buys it. They pay $500 for this thing. 400 to $500 for this thing, actually. I have the plat for Grand Lakes here. I show Sam where the tiny font is. And is subject to extended control inundation under the management of U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. What exactly does that mean? It basically means Grand Lakes 
is actually designed to flood in a situation like Harvey. Really? It's behind these dams. In essence, Grand Lakes is inside the reservoir. So if it is inside the reservoir, how would they approve these plans? I wanted to know the same thing. To try and get an answer, I went to see this guy. Come on, man. Have a seat. Here we are again. Here we are again. I don't know why you guys want to talk to me. You should be tired by now. I've been to Steve Costello's office a lot over the past couple years. People call him the flood czar, and he works up on the fourth floor of Houston City Hall. He helps direct policy to protect the city from flooding. I asked Steve if he knew that homes in the Houston area sit on land designed to flood by the Army Corps. No, I wasn't paying much attention to that, to be candid. I'm not quite sure if I really knew that much about it. The guy in charge of flooding policy in Houston is telling me he didn't know there were thousands of homes in these reservoirs. He says all those homes were built before his time. I don't know when the developments occurred. It's not like they occurred yesterday. You know, they've been there for quite a long time. I pull out a plat to show Steve. It's the same one I showed realtor Sam Chaudhry. This plat was approved in 2004, and it actually has Costello Inc. Right, there on the corner. So is that your engineering or development firm? Right, that was the engineering firm I formerly was employed with. He's being modest. Steve Costello founded Costello Inc. and was president of the firm until 2015. Even as I'm showing him this plat, he still doesn't seem to understand that it's in the reservoir. It's outside the government-owned land. Even though it's outside the government-owned land, it's still inside the reservoir. It's still in a part of the land that's designed to flood. Well, if that information was available at the time that these developments would occur, it probably wouldn't have happened. The developer wouldn't have developed those lights. Except I point out to Steve the information was available at the time. It's written on the very plat that his engineering firm worked on. They were within the flood pool of Barker Reservoir. I'm not familiar with that. I didn't personally work on the project, but it was my firm that worked on it. You probably have to ask other engineers and other developers. Even for your own firm? I, you could ask the firm, the people that are to worked on the project. We go back and forth about this for a while. Eventually, Steve just says he doesn't want to look backward. He also says the city of Houston can't fix this alone. The reservoirs extend into the outskirts of Houston, which means county governments are also responsible. My name is Bob Abair, and I've been county judge in Fort Bend County since 2003. I'm in my 15th year in office. The title is kind of a weird Texas thing. Bob Abair doesn't have judicial powers. He's just the top elected official in the county. Maybe as everything worked out, uh, they wouldn't have built back there. Or they would have taken more steps. I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm, you know, I'm not a career politician. I just sort of stepped into this job when my predecessor had a heart attack. In fact, our reporting shows that thousands of homes went up inside the reservoirs after he took office. There were plats for those new neighborhoods, plats that he had to sign. There's a plat here that I found from your time as county judge. It was approved in 2004. And so your signature is here. Right. So why sign these documents when they have the disclosure, but then say, actually, I didn't realize that we had all these homes. In I don't cars. read the plats. We sign dozens of plats every week. Could the engineer have done a better review since it has the disclosure on there so that you No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Uh, uh, you're playing Perry Mason now. Screw your head around and go back to July of this year. Mm -hmm. Platting in Fort Bend County wasn't important to you. Wasn't important to the Texas Tribune. All right? Well, why won't you come? Why didn't you come in here and talk to me? Didn't you know Harvey was going to happen? Actually, we've known for more than a year that these homes would one day flood. And we've been reporting on it. Allow me to screw my head around all the way to October 2016. Remember, that's when Richard Long from the Army Corps gave me the tour we heard earlier. So we're on the inside of the reservoir right now. And here's apartment complexes on the inside of the reservoir. Richard Long isn't allowed to talk to me anymore because the Army Corps is facing lawsuits from flooded residents not just from people inside the reservoir, but also ones who flooded downstream when Attics and Barker got too full. The record rain in this region has put reservoirs and dams under tremendous strain. During Harvey, the dams surrounding the reservoirs had to hold so much water, the Army Corps worried they might fail. If that happened, downtown Houston could have literally been swept away by a massive wall of water. So the Army Corps made a hard choice. 
opening floodgates to relieve the pressure. And the Army Corps of Engineers says it had to let the water out of those reservoirs, essentially to save downtown because they were filling up too fast. But that water... When the engineers opened those floodgates, they sent water rushing towards neighborhoods downstream. Thousands of homes flooded, including Cynthia Neely's. It's like the wall is curved. Well, what? Yeah, it is. It's, it's buckled way out. If you get down, you can see really... Oh, my God. Cynthia's showing me a brick wall on her house that looks like it's about to collapse. During Harvey, she thought her home was safe. But then just as the storm was petering out, water started pouring in because the Army Corps opened those floodgates. And then it got to a point that it started coming in faster and faster, and we just had to go upstairs. Nearly two feet of water sat on Cynthia's first floor for weeks. Now she's suing the Army Corps. Do you think this is salvageable, the house? I don't know, but I I don't really care. I mean, I don't want to salvage it. We're in harm's way. Addicts and Barker were supposed to protect Cynthia. But all those houses upstream, inside the reservoirs, put her at risk. Back when the area was just grasslands, water absorbed naturally into the ground. As it's been developed and paved over, now more and more water collects behind those earthen dams during every storm. For years, the Army Corps has warned Congress and local officials that the aging dams can't handle it. They're now at the top of a list of most dangerous dams in the country. Cynthia says the Army Corps should never have let things get this bad. Their excuses are so lame, they make me sick. They've had almost 80 years to make those dams safe. They saw danger, they did nothing. Will you stay in Houston? No. You leave Houston? I love this city. I have loved this city from the moment I stepped foot on the ground. And, um, but I'm 68 years old. My husband's 71. I want to be able to sleep at night. Since Harvey, local officials have requested $6 billion from Congress to buy out and demolish homes in the reservoirs. There's no telling if it'll ever be approved. Since the storm, we've been keeping our eye on those neighborhoods inside the reservoirs. Believe it or not, people are still buying houses there. But we haven't found any real estate listings disclosing the risk. In fact, we've never seen any mention that these homes sit on top of land that's designed to flood. That story was produced by Reveal's Nina Satija, who's based at the Texas Tribune. She had reporting help from the Tribune's Kia Collier and from Al Shaw at ProPublica. To find a lot more houses in danger of catastrophic flooding, you don't have to look inside a reservoir. You can just go to the Louisiana coast, where the next storm could change thousands of lives. People will migrate one after another, and towns will, will fall apart as a result. That's next. On Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. In the last few years, there's a phrase that people started throwing around. The world's first climate change refugees. We should expect to see more climate migrants. In some ways, they are also environmental refugees. Climate change migrants and climate change refugees and evacuees. Whatever you want to call them, people are forced to leave their homes because of things like rising seas, rising temperatures, and extreme weather. The UN says there could be up to a billion in the coming decades, including millions right here in the U.S. People like Malcolm Lacoste, or as his friends call him, Lil Mackey. He that door base, so she ain't got quite so much noise. He's a shrimper about 100 miles southwest of New Orleans. He's on his boat just getting back from four days catching shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico. It's nice to be getting home. On board with him is WWNO reporter Tegan Wendland. It's real pretty up here. I think that's why I like it so much. My scenery all the time is what people take pictures of. The early morning sun sparkles on the water of Bayou de Large, a channel that runs from the ocean all the way to Mackey's house. Here on the Louisiana coast, the bayou is like the main street of a small town. Every house you pass so far is first, second cousins. Oh, wow. Just... You go from the Lacoste to the Lavos to the D-Hearts. It's, it's all family. 
But the water that connects these families also makes their neighborhood increasingly dangerous. The land here is disappearing, making it one of the most vulnerable places in the state to flooding from hurricanes and tropical storms. Some of the houses are raised up high on stilts. Some are empty because owners have moved away. Those who remain, like Mackie, have to plan their lives around hurricane season. The first thing I do is watch the weather, especially once you get into June and July, when your storm starts really brewing up around. I have to get in, lift everything up that I can, get it out of harm's way, secure my boat, and get out of Dodge. As storms continue to get worse, Louisiana's Republican legislature has been reluctant to place the blame on climate change. But they can't ignore the effects. The state's been planning for the next big storm ever since the devastation of Hurricane Katrina more than a decade ago. And thousands of people like Mackie are waiting to see if those plans will help them. Tegan Wendland takes it from here. You can't really see what's happening to the Louisiana coast when you're on a boat. Because first off, the coast is all around you. It isn't a straight line of beach or cliffs. On a map, it looks more like the bottom of the state's boot shape is unraveling into marshy fingers that reach out into the Gulf. The best way to really picture it ready? is to see it from above. Ready? Woohoo! I take a tour on a tiny propeller plane. On board with me is a coastal scientist, Alex Kolker, and an environmental law professor, Rob Verchik. Oh, look at there's the birds over there. Oh, got it. Little white pelicans, it looks like. Yeah, they get up pretty high. We dodge the pelicans and look down on what's making Louisiana's coast such a dangerous place to live. Alex points out how the land is becoming marsh and the marshes are dissolving into water. That intact marsh that we flew over at the start of the, of the flight is probably what these areas used to look like 100, 150 years ago. And now we've just, you know, if you eyeball it, you know, it's 60, 40, 70, 30, water to land. Land is washing away into the Gulf. 2,000 square miles have disappeared since the 1930s. It's caused by sea level rise, long-term erosion, and oil companies. You can see how this area was drilled for oil, right? See all these little canals? They've dug canals so their boats can reach oil rigs they built out in the marshes. And those canals have eroded and turned to open water. To preserve the land that remains, the state's pumping in dirt to create marshes and barrier islands and building levees, basically walls to hold back the ocean. As the plane turns, Alex tells me to look down. So that very unnatural feature is the, uh, is the shape of the levee. It's a straight line made of tons of dirt dividing the open water from land where you can see houses. But not all of the houses are safely behind the levees. That was Lil Mackey's house right back there. Nice. Yeah, we flew right over it. Nice. The water seems to be very, very close. You know, you, and in the air, you can really see how close the water is. Mackey's house is on an unprotected little spit of land, surrounded by water. So how do you think it feels to be some of the families that are watching this big levee go up, and they know that they're outside of it? Oh, well, that's, that's got to be devastating, I would think, right? Because they know exactly what that means. That's like the, uh, like the lifeboat sailing away without you on it. After we land, I ask him a follow-up. What happens to the people who are left behind? Well, people will migrate, one after another. Uh, and towns will, will fall apart as a result. And economies will tank. And it'll all be very chaotic. It will happen. Uh, the only question is, are we going to get ahead of the curve? Louisiana has tried to get ahead of the curve. After Hurricane Katrina, the state unified its planning powers under a single agency, the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. Bren Haas is the lead planner. You look more prepared than I. (laughs) He's a little self-deprecating, which must come in handy when you're trying to pull off such an ambitious mission. We uh, are charged with uh, restoring our coastline and reducing risk, protecting our citizens from hurricane storm surges. For the last decade, that's meant trying to save the land by building all of those marshes, barrier islands, and levees. But in the 2017 version of the agency's coastal master plan, that's changed. We know um, that the future of our coast will be a a much different coast than it is today. Um, By different, you mean there will be less of it? Yes, yes. Um, we, We can't restore our coast to the level that it was at 10 years ago, 100 years ago, certainly. 
the state is now admitting it's a losing battle. Some land will be lost forever. Flooding from storms will get worse. And there are some people on the coast the state will not be able to protect. The Coastal Agency used an elaborate statistical model to forecast how bad flooding might get. If a strong storm would cause at least five feet of flooding, they say you should raise your home a little higher than that. And if the floodwaters are projected to hit 12 feet, you should just move. They estimate there are 2,400 houses like this. And the plan is to pay the homeowners to leave and knock those houses down. Just putting that down on paper, Bren says, that's kind of a big deal. I think it's uh, important to note that um, this is really the first time we've had this kind of this level of discussion about this sensitive of a topic. People don't want to be told they have to move, especially coastal Louisianans. They're fiercely independent. Many of their ancestors moved to the coast in the first place because they didn't want the government telling them what to do. Native Americans driven into the marshes by the Indian Removal Act and scrappy French settlers like the grandparents of Mackie, the shrimper. A big storm could cause 14 feet of flooding for his house. That would make him eligible for a buyout. I wonder if he would take an offer to buy and demolish his house. I would have to think about it a lot. Because that's my whole livelihood. It's not just where I live at. Uh, Probably now that I've been doing it a while and I'm getting toward the end of my... I would probably consider it. I seriously consider it. It's not going to get any better. The marsh isn't coming back. Now, remember, Mackie's house is just one of 2,400. So I wonder what the rest of them would think. And would money change their thinking? I decide to do an informal survey of Mackie's neighbors. Hello. Starting with a group of older men fixing the engine on a shrimp boat. Mm. Reveal Stan Elkhorn came with. So how big would a government check have to be? to convince any of you guys to, to, to move somewhere else. $100 million piece. $100 million! You see, most of us down here, we, we wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So I think that little interaction gives you a sense of what you encounter down here a lot. But as we talk to people, we find it doesn't take much to change their minds. For instance, we come up to one house... Windows covered in plastic and plywood. Hi. 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 We're reporters. Okay. Diana Liner answers the door. Is that something that you would be interested in? If there were money to help you move, would you move? Uh, I mean, I'm 57 years old. My husband's 61. We're too old to start over on a new house and new payments. Mm-hmm. She says she's flooded and rebuilt so many times she can't remember. After Katrina, she applied for help to elevate her house. But she couldn't get the money. The bureaucracy involved was just too complicated. And the laws are so stupid that my house didn't get raised. <laughs> Somebody's That's my daughter. <laughs> her daughter, Consuela Punch, peeks through the window shades to see who her mom's talking to. Hi. Then comes out the front door wearing a cheetah print robe. So we were asking your mom about buyouts, if there were any kind of buyout program. The ocean's coming up. More storms are coming. People here will have to move. It's one of the most vulnerable parts of the state. And so we were talking... We don't want to move. But if there were money, would you? Yeah. They don't have a lot of faith that a new government program will help them. But if it was easy, if it paid enough money, that's a different story. Again and again, it doesn't take long to get from no, we don't want to move, to name a price. All it really takes is a conversation about flood risk, but also about dollars and cents, which Bren Haas, the planner at the Coastal Authority, understands. Our first step needs to be to go to that local entity, the community, whatever it may be, and say, here's what we're seeing, here's what our data is telling us about land loss and storm surges and, and vulnerabilities, you know, and here's some options to address those bad situations. Uh, that's happening? You are going to those That's not happening yet, no. It's not happening yet. It's not happening yet. The state hasn't told any of those 2,400 households they should move. In fact, despite their elaborate computer modeling, do you know where these specific properties are? Uh, I do not. Um, I don't have a list, uh, you know, of of structures in in my pocket or anything like that. The agency couldn't tell us where the houses were, so we requested their data about where the worst flooding will happen, and we made our own map. That's how we found Mackie and his neighbors. Do you want to see the map we made? Sure. 
Reveal's data team used red to mark the areas where the state wants people to leave, and large swaths of the coast were red. Brent takes a long, hard look at the map. I think, it is, I think it's very interesting. <laughs> he didn't have much of a reaction, but he did email us later asking if he could get a copy. It seems like they could have made the map themselves if they really wanted to. But Bren says the state is purposefully not going out and looking for these people for a very simple reason. The buyout program would cost $1.2 billion. And so far, Bren says they don't have that money. There has been almost none. There really has been. Not, not much uh, that would have been available for this kind of thing. And without money, the buyout plan is really just a fancy blueprint. But if the coast is such a big priority for the state, why don't they have the money? Why can't they just appropriate it from the state budget? We asked State Representative Jerome Zerang. Why not appropriate it? Because we don't have it. Why aren't you driving in a Lamborghini right now? Because you can't afford it. The reality is the state doesn't have the money. States usually don't have the money to deal with major disasters like hurricanes and floods. They turn to the federal government and disaster-related grants from the Federal Emergency Management Agency or the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Some of those grants pay for things that sound like Louisiana's buyout program, but they're different. I get a firsthand look at a program paid for with one of these federal grants in Roberta Grove. It's a subdivision a half-hour drive from where Mackie the Shrimper lives. I'm going up this bridge, right? Yes, going up and over the bridge. I go there with Jennifer Gerbasi. She's a local planner whose whole job is managing federal disaster money. So these little plots here are where buyouts occurred? Yes, these are where bio, where bios have occurred. Okay, so we're just looking at just a mowed lot here, and there's houses on either side. Mm-hmm. Which is how most of our bios are. They're next to other houses. I point to one of the empty lots. This one says it's, it's for sale. Yes, it is for sale. So someone can build here again? Yes. People can build here again, as long as they raise the new houses a few feet off the ground. The federal money being spent here isn't getting people to abandon dangerous areas before a storm. It's helping people who've already been hit. Republican Congressman Garrett Graves wants to change this. He represents much of southern Louisiana, where people are still cleaning up after more than 100,000 homes flooded in 2016. When I met him, he'd just come back from Washington, where he spends a lot of his time trying to get federal disaster money. It's an unpredictable funding stream. And now he's competing for relief funds in the aftermath of hurricanes in Houston and Puerto Rico. He says this whole approach, where we come in with money after the disaster, is just not very effective. Studies show a dollar spent before a disaster saves $4 later. And I think instead of throwing a nickel at every $10 problem across the country, which is what we're doing right now, um, we instead come in and corral or focus those investments on things that are true priorities, like, for example, investing in buyouts in instances where that unfortunately is the best investment, to where we're spending money before these disasters strike and saving the billions that we come in and spend after disasters happen. But these days, he says, that's beginning to feel like more and more of an uphill battle. In 2013, then-President Obama ordered federal agencies to work together to prepare for climate change. But President Trump has rescinded that order. Since the state doesn't have the money and the federal government isn't coming to the rescue... Coastal planner Bren Haas says there's only one place left to look for money. A 2006 law that gives Louisiana a cut of offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. There's a kind of justice to using this money, since oil companies are already implicated both in climate change and in eroding the coast. Next year, Louisiana's cut is supposed to be $70 million. That's a lot of money, until you compare it to the price tag of the buyout program. I mean, that's not anywhere near $1.2 billion. No, no. You can't ignore the fact that the dollars aren't there to do it. Uh, Obviously, that's a huge roadblock uh, to implementation. And as long as he doesn't have the dollars to actually help people, Bren doesn't see a lot of upside in telling people they should move. To go to an individual homeowner and say, this is what needs to happen, you know, in this particular location um, um, might actually be irresponsible at this point. That's (laughs) ridiculous. Scott Eustace works for the Gulf Restoration Network, an environmental group advocating for people on the coast. I mean, it is the responsibility of the state to inform its residents that there are threats to their public safety, and they need to be talking to people about that now. 
He says people don't even understand the danger they're in, let alone their options. And if they did, they'd be fighting to get help. If the state did have the money and helped all of those 2,400 households move, there would still be a lot of people left behind, like the Williams family. Ollie and Daniel Williams live just northeast of New Orleans in a little rural subdivision called Avery Estates. They grew up out here. This is where we wanted to be forever. We wanted to build our home with our family, have memories. Our families have been living out here since the 70s. So, I mean, my grandpa used to form pigs out here. Never got water this bad. It floods all the time now. And when it does, the water quickly rises in their yard. They've raised their home 13 feet in the air, so the house stays dry, but the cars get stuck, the kids miss school, and life is tough enough already without the flooding. Daniel's disabled, and they live off of his disability check, only about $1,000 a month for them, their two kids, and five dogs. Personally, I only give myself another year on this property, if that, and I'm fed up with it. I'm disgusted. I hate coming home. It's just, we can't be the family we want to be back here. So it's cutting out a lot of our lives. But once again, is the government going to give you enough money to do anything, you know? I mean... At least when it comes to Louisiana's proposed buyout plan, probably not. On our map, the area where the Williams live is just outside of the red zone eligible for buyouts. The projected flooding where they are just isn't quite bad enough. So how does it make you feel to see that you know, that red zone's coming up. That's sickening and sad. It's sad that we're, like, the only little square that's left out. It isn't just that little square that's left out. There are a lot of people across Louisiana who are getting flooded and won out. But for now, they're all waiting for the next big storm to hit and the federal money that comes with it. That's Tegan Wendland, coastal reporter at WWNO. Our story was produced by Reveal Stan Alcorn. Since we first aired this story, state officials have started to seriously consider how to relocate people on the coast. There's funding to move a small number of homes where Mackey lives and a new interagency council that could tackle relocation in the future. Our show was produced by Nina Satija, Stan Alcorn, Laura Starcheski, and Phoebe Petrovic. Reb Myers, Deb George, and Taki Telenidis edited the show with help from Ziva Brandstetter. Special thanks to Dave Harmon from the Texas Tribune. Reveal senior data reporter Eric Zagara and to WHYY for production help. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. We had help this week from Catherine Ray Mondo and Kat Shuknick. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, And remember, there is always more to the story.